Welcome to The Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, and still less ukulele. On this episode, while inspired by a recent post in the Milk the Funk group on Facebook, I stopped in with one of my brewing partners in crime, Ken Fletcher, to call out the brood squad again and look back at our experiments with Method Champenoise. That's right, we're making the champagne of beers, and no, I don't mean Miller High Life. So sit back and listen to how you can capture the stars in your beer with a blend of artistry, rhythm, and a whole bunch of dry ice and acetone. But first, a message from our sponsors. Do you own a copy of John Palmer's How to Brew? If so, you know it's one of those truly indispensable resources for brewers. Well, it's time to replace that old dog-eared copy, because our friends at Brewers Publications have just published the fourth edition of How to Brew, and it's a totally new book. The new How to Brew clocks in at 600 pages, and every chapter has been updated and expanded, and there are five totally new chapters to boot. So grab your copy at your preferred beer book vendor, or buy it from the Brewers Association store if you want to get the book and support craft breweries at the same time. More info at BrewersPublications.com. Family-owned Atlantic Brew Supply is the biggest homebrew shop in the Southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. Unique ingredients from local suppliers, including malt from neighboring artisan malt house Epiphany Craft Malts and award-winning recipe kits, including the Toll, Raleigh Brewing Company's GABF-winning Imperial Oatmeal Stout. Plus, we've got pro-level equipment and the best-in-cask supply equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Malts, extracts, and more, all available by the ounce, an on-site calculator to help you craft your best brew, same-day order processing, and guaranteed two-day shipping for East Coast customers. Get 15% off your first order when you use the coupon code BREWFILES at checkout at Atlantic Brew Supply. So, hey, welcome back, everybody. This is The Brew Files. And, of course, uh, you know, we figured yeah, we should talk about some brute beers because that's become a subject recently. And if I'm going to talk about the brute beers, I have to be sitting here with Mr. Fletcher. Mr. Fletcher, say hello to everybody. Hey, everybody. All right. So, hey, Kent, real quick, let's fill everybody in because I always tell people that if there's something mechanical that's been built, if there's something that I've done that requires actual physical things to be created – it's really your creation. I just happened to write about it. So tell everybody about yourself and how you got into brewing. Well, I was interested in brewing for a long time before I actually got into it. I was uh, interested back in high school, never never really did anything past making one batch of cider. And then uh, had a stretch where I worked at the LA Central Library downtown and had like 300 brewing texts to be to, uh, read 
So I got a lot more interested, and I finally jumped into homebrewing, and that's when I met you and joined the Maltus Falcons, and and then magic happened. The rest is history. Yeah. So now, real quick, we're going to talk about brute beers, which are champagne beers. We'll lay out a little bit of history for everybody, real quick. Brute beer. I mean, for us, we first really became avail- uh, aware of it in I think 2003 or so when Deus de Bustiles, uh became available here in LA. Right. And suddenly it started to show up as like a special thing at our festivals. And you and I being you and I, we we went, we can make this for a lot cheaper than I think what they were like 30, 35 bucks a bottle. It was, it was about 30 bucks for a 750. And this is back when the average craft bomber was maybe three bucks. Yeah. I mean, it was insane. Now, Deus de Bastilles is one of the two. The other one is the Malheur and they have a Brut and a Brut Noir. And the whole reason there's only two of these out there in the world, at least they're called Brut Beer, is for legal reasons. I guess Malheur owns a trademark on it or a process patent or something. And when Bastilles came out and said, hey, look, we're making this beer, they sued and everybody came to an agreement that basically said, okay, we can do it. Nobody else can. And that's it. Which, of course, also gave us extra incentive to do it as homebrewers. Right. I mean, homebrewers frequently like to thumb their nose at such conventions. But it's it's not unlike the Champagne district in, in France where a sparkling wine to be called Champagne has to come from that region. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, you can never have an American Champagne for reasons. Let's talk a little bit about the basics of the style. We talk about brute beer as if though it's a style, but really it's a technique laid in on top of something. Now, to me, I always think of this as being sort of, you have to start with a Belgian strong. And we pretty much have yep. uh, with a couple of variations. We're talking like, uh, by the way, when we say Belgian strong, we're not talking like nominal Belgian strong. We're talking 11 to 13 or more percent alcohol by volume. And we're talking on the high side of the triple range and into borderline quad. And varying colors, varying flavors. We'll get into that in a moment. But the real thing that separates out what makes a brute beer or a champagne beer, other than Miller High Life advertising campaigns, because this is not that sort of champagne of beers, is the whole method of Champenoise process. Right. The bottling. Yeah. And really, the only thing that method of Champenoise is, is in comparison to everything else about beer or winemaking, it's re-fermentation in the bottle. All right. If if you want to be blunt about it, your average home brewer who's sitting there doing bottle conditioning is halfway to method of Champenoise. Oh, exactly. I mean, you're, uh, you're taking a finished beer Adding a little bit of sugar, generally uh, either either sugar syrup or uh, fresh wort, uh, which we when we've done it both ways, mm-hmm. and getting it to uh, referment, basically bottle condition, and then the trick is uh, trying to get the beer clear, and then finding a way to get it get it uh, get the yeast out and recork it. Without losing too much fizz. Yeah, the, the fizz is the magic. And yeah, so I mean, basically what it comes down to is it's bottle conditioning with the additional step of how do we get rid of the yeast. Right. And that big old yeast slurry, every home brewer knows it because it's always there in your first beers. And in the case of this beer, because because it's so much work, uh, we mostly bottle in magnums. So when you've got a liter and a half, and we did bigger as well, but... <laughs> 
most of the 90% of our bottling, liter and a, the Magnum, or liter and a half, was the smallest bottles we used. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, we, did, we, did, we did nine or, or six months, didn't we? I've got, we've still got a six liter that we've never disgorged. Hmm. But project. <laughs> another project. We did three variants of this. And I mean, we, we have done this multiple times, but there are three primary variants that we did. We did our, our original, which was just the, the Brut de Facon, which is really sort of our attempt at making a clone of Deus. Exactly. We then did a Noir, which is really our attempt at sort of going along that same line as the Malheur Dark. And then the the last one, and I think arguably one of my favorites, was the the brut um, uh, brut Houblon. De yeah Houblon, which was the hoppy one, the Belgian IPA that that really kind of sung sometimes. Yeah, it was uh, it it wasn't super hoppy, but it was more pronounced than most Belgian beers were at that time. There was nobody was making a Belgian IPA at that time. Yeah, I mean, well, I think it was directly inspired by the uh, the Schuft de Houblon, right? And that was the hoppiest thing that we'd ever seen out of Belgium. And then we made this thing. So exactly, very important. I think we have to get out there. First things first, when you're brewing one of these, your brew day, it's like any other brew day. Right. And there's nothing different that we're doing. I mean, we may be trying to target, you know, sort of increased fermentability by going down to say 148 on the Fahrenheit on the, the mash schedule, just because we're we're talking about a lot of sugar, but I mean, that wouldn't be anything I would do differently than if I was trying to make a Belgian beer that was in the 11 to 13% range to start with. Exactly. And, you, and you're going to want to use some percentage of, of uh, simple sugar mm -hmm. in the rest so that you get that dry finish and, of course, boosting the alcohol. The only thing I would add is that you want to do as much as you can to, to do uh, with kettle fining yep. to uh, reduce the break. Because you're, you're going to be dealing with this for quite a while. Well, and very importantly, the reason to focus on the kettle finding is you want to drop as much out as you can in the kettle, not only so that you're dealing less with anything in the bottle, but also so that you're you're not trying to do any post-finding stages where you're going to strip out yeast. Because yeast is important in this. Yes, yeah, so you, you need the yeast to hang around for quite a while. Right. And so that brings us into the next step, which is that you have to pitch this thing aggressively, right? Oh, yes. And you need... Make the healthiest freaking starter that you have ever made in your entire life. Get the most yeast that you can get into this thing. Do not worry about the idea of underpitching in order to increase phenolics and esters. You're trying to make a, a beer with enough yeast in it that's going to survive not only the 13% alcohol, but also the three and a half to five volumes of CO2 that you're going to subject this yeast to. Don't mess around with this. You need... Good yeast. Not to mention aging. I mean, we've we've turned a couple batches around in a hurry, but our first batch, eighteen months. Uh, I think it was about fifteen from from brew day to bottling day, or I should say, brew day to disgorging. You are talking about some time, and obviously that first one took a little bit longer because I think we were kind of messing around and sort of forgot about it, which happens. But remember, we had other to do. Yeah, good yeast health. Always remember good yeast health, and also I, I think actually we should go back. It's good to pick a characterful yeast. I would also avoid ever putting, and I would also avoid ever putting, you know, like heavy spices, heavy flavorings into the kettle. And the reason I would do that is just because I think we had so much fun doing bottle variants. Oh, definitely. You can, you can always add that at the disgorging stage. Finally, you get into the ferment. 
fermentation is normal or as normal as you can be for a fermentation that's going to last for 13% alcohol. Yeah, maybe a little bit of extra oxygen in that first 24 hours, but otherwise get enough yeast in there, get enough oxygen in there, and then let it ride. Yeah, you want a nice, healthy primary, and you're going to have a long, cool secondary. Patience is definitely a virtue when producing any brute because you want that, you want it to drop fairly clear with the, with the exception of the yeast that are going to want to stay in suspension anyway. And I would also say you you also want to make sure that you have plenty of time for any yeast esters, like any of the big nasty ones to kind of die out. Right. You know, like 3787, for instance, from Y yeast, you know, that always wants a little extra time. But I would also say that you you really just want enough time to make sure that this beer has finished fermenting. You know, unless you really know what you're doing, don't try and rush this thing because the last thing the university want to do is try and go and do aggressive carbonation from priming into a beer that already has some extra residual sugar and put that into something that's going to turn into a hand grenade. Get that beer bone dry. Yeah, well, in the case of a Magnum, it's it's closer to a blockbuster than a hand grenade. Yeah, yeah. We, we've had a few of them explode on us. You don't want it to happen. Get the beer dry, but otherwise your fermentation is normal. Now, that does bring us into the bottles. Big thing about the bottles is we want those thick, heavy, champagne-style bottles. I don't like the the Belgian uh, corked bottles for this, you know, the ones with the strong, uh, you know, straight sides. I want a champagne bottle in this because you are putting so much pressure in this, it's not even funny. Yeah, a, a quality champagne bottle will weigh, a, a 750 will weigh somewhere around eight ounces empty, and the Magnums are probably a pound and a half. And, and those threes and sixes, good Lord. Yeah. You break one, the the uh, bottom half of a Magnum, is the glass is almost a half inch thick. I have a picture somewhere of one of these broken, but even I think actually up around the neck, and even that was thick. Yeah. You want to find good bottles. And I, I actually would say, I think right now for us, the reason why we haven't done one of these recently isn't because of the work. It's because we haven't been able to find so many of the big bottles like we used to like to well, use. Well, we, a little comedy of errors at the start, we told our local homebrew shop, our hosts, the, the home beer wine, wine and cheese, yes, home beer wine and cheese making shop in in Woodland Hills. We told the owner that we wanted thirty magnums. He ordered thirty cases. <laughs> Fortunately, a case of magnums are only six bottles, but that's still a lot of bottles. Well, and we, and we rode those uh, those magnums into the dirt. I think. Well, we had quite a few. Uh, Disappear? Disappear. There's attrition, especially when you start making batches for weddings, etc. And, and it does turn out that if you're reusing the bottles again and again in these high-pressure situations, glass does tend to weaken over time. Well, and you have to be especially careful of any bumps. Um, you can have a, a bump with the empty bottle and you don't even know it, but you set up a fracture line and then that next time it pressurizes, it goes. And again, the reason why we're stressing this, I mean, seriously, we we did these. I mean, I think the lowest one we ever did was we did three and a half volumes. And the highest one that we ever did was like five. And when we did that, I mean, that was, I mean, again, I mean, that's enough. I mean, that, that's a crap ton of sugar. It is. I, I, I don't know that we ever did one as low as three and a half. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, again, it was, I mean, it's still, it's one of these things where, I mean, I think for the Noir, for instance, the Noir was a 19-gallon batch. And when we got out the other side of it, I think we had somewhere around 17 gallons, 16 gallons. And 
that took, according to our notes, so according to our notes, we took 19 gallons, or sorry, 68 liters, 68 liters, and we put it up to five and a half volumes of CO2 with 2.8 pounds of corn sugar. That gives you an idea of how much sugar we're talking about here. Yeah, into a syrup. Sometimes we did that with uh, with spices. Sometimes we didn't. A lot of times I think we just did it plain because still we want to push the last bit of flavoring off to the end. Suffice to say, a lot of sugar, a lot of, a lot of carbonation. Yep. And then you just cap it and you wait a period. I've got to let you talk about this part, the next part, the riddling. This is the actual work. And this is this was what you did for this project to that made it really sing. So let's talk riddling. Well, riddling, uh, for those not familiar with it, uh, this comes from the traditional champagne uh, manufacturing, well, champagne making, uh, originally by the monks, where they found that if they gradually inclined the bottles and gave them a little twist, a sharp twist each day in a special rack, with the bottles eventually winding up inverted, that they could get all the yeast and sediment to collect down in the neck of the bo- bottle against the temporary cap, that's, which is not a regular crown cap, when you, when you initially bottle. Yeah, and if you watch the actual riddlers go do this uh, when they do the rumage or right, I and mean, you watch these guys go do this. I mean, it's super freaking fast when they do it in the manual. Yeah, process. they're they're doing two at a time, and they've got racks that are a frames with oblong cutouts for each bottle, and and they go through a rack of a dozen bottles in like ten seconds or something. It's However, ridiculous. let us let us say that this is not necessary. There are ways to cheat, and you have a good one. Yeah, what we what we did was we just inverted the bottles to start with right back into the cardboard cases that, that they came in and then every day give it a little lift, a little sh- uh, twist. Well, so, so you got the, the bottles in upside down and then yes. you put the case box on its side, right? Well, original, originally on its side and then gradually inclined it. But we we basically rushed it to the point of getting them inverted um, much faster than the tr- traditional uh, champagne rulers do. And then using the same kind of twisting motion to dislodge the stuff from the sides of the bottles and get it to slide down the neck. That, along with a little thump by lifting the bottle, giving it a sharp twist clockwise, counterclockwise, and then letting it drop about a half inch back onto the cap. Of course, this is into a double double layer cardboard box so it's not we're not risking the bottles but it gives it a little thud and helps things settle out and all of this is basically to break up the inertia break up the static cling break up you know like you use gravity as your friend but really just constantly moving it further and further down now by the time we get done with this how long how long would this process take when you were doing doing these bottles the uh the fastest we did it was probably just a few weeks because we were making a batch for a friend's wedding and the longest was probably three to four months because we were being lazy yeah well somewhat lazy and still dealing with the bottles at least three four times a week (laughs) then once we get down to the end of this we've got the bottles completely upside down again they're vertical caps down on the ground yeast plug up against that cap right and if you're doing this in the traditional champagne way you'll hear people talk about bindles which are little plastic things that go inside the cap supposedly help attract the yeast we never use them and then 
what the bottles go from there into the fridge to get as cold as possible, right? Well, yes, we were doing that for the disgorging. Uh, just another quick note on the riddling is to have a strong light when you think you might be done. Hold the bottle up, still inverted, shine a light through the neck, and look for that dust of yeast and or sediment on the slope part of the bottle. Yep. And if it's still there, give it another, you know, give it another week of riddling. You really do as much as possible. You want to get that yeast out of the slope and down into the neck because anything that remains up on that slope is not coming out when you do the next part. Right. All right. So next part. So we chill we pre-chill the bottles to get ready for the disgorging. Disgorging is basically well, how, how far down do we pre-chill the bottles? Oh, just as cold as the fridge would get them. So below 40. And we get them get them as cold cold as you can. For the next step, the disgorging process involves freezing the neck of the bottle, popping the cap off, letting the pressure push the little plug of yeast out of the bottle, and then replacing that missing volume with either fresh wort or a sugar solution or a flavored or spiced sugar solution. And sometimes we used other beer that we had from the right. the, the blend. Yeah, I think once we actually used finished beer yep. just to replace the volume, we didn't we didn't worry about the extra carbonation. And then slamming the plastic cork into it and wiring the cage up. Yeah, and I mean, you can be fancy and use a, uh, a actual champagne corker, but we never went to that extent because why? The thing yeah. about this, I mean, this this part right here, this disgorgement piece, this is the heart and soul of what makes Methochampanoise, methochampanoise. Absolutely. It was always the most, uh, the part of the process that people found the most interesting. It was we had, fun. We had a video of disgorging a couple of bottles up on the Falcons website and it got a lot of views. Keep in mind, the idea is that we've got these bottles, they're ice cold, and we want them to be as cold as we can because the colder they are, the more CO2 stays in solution. Right. If you try to do this with warm bottles, you're going to lose three quarters of your beer out of the bottle. And it's a gusher. Yeah. So you keep everything as cold as possible. You get that yeast all up against that cap. You stick it in this mixture of dry ice and acetone, or if you're worried about using acetone, a lot of people out there say you can use ethanol. We never had much luck doing that method because dry ice and acetone gets down to negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit or negative degrees Celsius, negative 40 degrees Celsius if you're Celsius inclined because it's the magical crossover point. And what you stick the bottle in this ice bath and you get like a little pot. And this is important. Don't try and do this in a big bath. Do it in a little pot that gets good height. Stick the bottle upside down in that and hold it there for a minute, ice plug. And we would always do this where we'd have multiple people there because people, of course, want to turn this into a party. They want to see this fun madness. Fletch would be holding the bottles in the in the ice bath. I'd be taking and doing the disgorgement. Somebody else would be doing the filling. Somebody else would be doing the capping. But hold them there for a minute. Boom. Ice plug. Perfect. Right? You have to time it sometimes... You hold it too long and you've got an ice plug that forms down or up enough because the bottle's inverted. If it starts to get into the slope, then you're done. The you ice won't, it, the plug won't come out. Yeah, you got to let it thaw. Well, what we actually did in a couple of cases was hit the neck with a heat gun. So here we are taking it to minus 40 and then hitting it with a, about a 400 degree heat gun. So no wonder we lost a couple of bottles. Okay, one, we're not the brightest people in the universe, but we were bright enough to always remember the first rule, wear your safety glasses. Yes, we did. <laughs> so this is the fun part. I mean, this sounds like madness. And when you start to first read the instructions, you think, this is impossible. You can't do this. This is insane. Once you actually start to do it, 
you start to realize it's not that hard. It's just building up the rhythm of it. Back on the safety and or tips, another smart suggestion is don't do this in your wife's kitchen. Actually popping the the yeast plug outdoors is the best is the best thing. Well, I was going to say, I think we hit your neighbor's yard with a few yeast plugs. Well, we had them all over the place. I had to, we had to go police up bottle caps afterwards because when you flip off the cap, a lot of the time the cap goes flying with the plug. And what's cool is, I mean, like, yeah, I mean, you literally have this ice plug and when you uncap it, depending upon how you've done it, sometimes you may have to give it. So yeah, sometimes you uncap it or decrown it. If you can find a decrown or even better, but you uncap it and the yeast plug comes out immediately. Sometimes it doesn't. And you got to wrap your hand around the neck of the bottle. Yeah. Just, just the, to warm the heat it, of your hand. Touch, just a touch. And then suddenly. Whoosh. So when you're popping the popping the yeast plug, you've got to be ready to. Uh, what's what's the word? Oh, yeah. Uh, you will refill the bottle. But it, now, of course, I'm blanking on the, the technical term. There's a French word for it. Dosage. The dosage. Of course. So what we did was we, we had, uh, when we were using, uh, with the first batch, we had two sugar syrups, uh, one with a spice blend and one without. And the spice blend was like lavender and a couple other things. By the way, be careful with lavender. Yeah. A little bit goes a long way. Uh, lavender and I think some ginger. Oddly enough, two of my favorite flavors. I don't know why we chose those. So what we did was have a, a pitcher sitting there with the dosage solution and then some cheap, uh, I think they're 10 or 20 cc syringes with just uh, about a four or five inch pieces of beer line attached to the end of the syringe. So you've already drawn up the uh, however, whatever it's going to take, 10, 15 cc's. You pop the the, uh, yeast plug, you put the bottle down, your helper shoves the syringe in there, pushes the plunger, and another helper sits a plastic cork on and hits with it over mallet. And again, if you if you go with it, you can do the champagne cork instead of the. the I, w- I would never, th- I would never want to do that because it, it takes too long. I know it's it, it's you lose too much. Yeah. But then you you cork it, yeah, you cage it, yeah, and then you, we put foils on top of it because we want to be nice, completists, and yeah, we also want to be able to tell, yeah, and we want to be able to tell which bottles they were, and then you rinse the bottles off, and guess what, you're done. That's it. You're ready. In fact. We would do this sometimes, and we would be in the middle of bottling and decide, we made that bottle, now let's pop that bottle and, and have some of that while we're making the other ones. That's right, and let's toast the process. So, now, I mean, again, we did this for a number of years, and we had great fun doing this. I think, to me, I know a lot of people complain that, or it's not so much that they complain, it's when they see the process, they think, this is too much work. And I get it. But once you actually start to get into the heart of it, what you realize is that it's really all you're doing is a second run on the bottling. Well, we had a couple of uh, brew clubs from one other brew club in the uh, Southern California area and one on the East Coast in Carolinas that, and those are the ones we know about, that picked this up as a club project in much the same way we were doing it. I mean, while most of it was, most of the work was, was Drew and myself and one of, one of the guy, uh, depending on various people, disgorging day, you can get two or three people and people are happy to volunteer for that because it's different and it's fun. Yeah, and you turn it into a party. We we just talked on another episode of The Brew Files about making a homebrew party. This is another version of that party. Have a meal. Have some fun. Have some beers. 
also make sure you're wearing your safety goggles. Don't to get too drunk. But I mean, this is, I mean, this was a fun process. And I mean, I think we're talking about revisiting it because it is a lot of fun. And the first time we ever popped this out was about year and a half after, after we did that. No, yeah. 15, 15, 18 months after we did that first batch of brewing, we brought it to the Southern California Homebrewers Festival, yeah. SCHF uh, in Temecula. And we just basically put a sign on the bar saying every hour on the hour, brute. Didn't say anything else. And the next thing you know, we started getting crowds because, I mean, you or they I. were showing up 15 minutes before. Oh, yeah. Just think, uh, remember, <laughs> we're at a Humber Festival. There's beer all around you, but people were right there just waiting because we would just walk out in front of the booth with this liter and a half magnum or sometimes larger and point the, point the neck somewhere towards the sky and let that cork fly. Yeah. And we'd get we'd get fifty sixty foot shots with the cork. Too. Yeah, well, yeah. When we got good carbonation on them, boom, and people would go insane for it. And it was and it was a delicious beer. Oh it, yeah, it really was a delicious beer. Just quick note for those who might not have been to the SoCal Homebrew Fest. The it's a once year thing's been going on for twenty five odd years, and a couple of well several different locations, but now back in Temecula. So upwards of thirty five to forty homebrew clubs setting up their own bars pouring and anywhere from 1500 to 2000 people yeah, and, and the clubs are always trying to compete to do something extra special and fun and oh, yeah. and this was our thing for a few years that we did but i mean just recently we just had the falcons Oktoberfest, and another part of the reason to talk about this other than the fact that milk the funk also actually started talking about method jamatoise bottles and I'm, hey we did that you brought out what was that 13 and a half year old bottle it was a 750 from the original batch. We had, uh, we m- did mostly magnums, but we had a whatever couple gallons left after we'd filled all the magnums, and we did a few 750s. And so we popped that thing. Of course, it <laughs> didn't have any pop to it anymore. No, that yeah, that one, that one, all the carbonation had escaped. There were several of them that I'd opened after 10 years uh, that were still popping the cork. Well, and what was amazing to me was, okay, so we didn't have a lot of carbonation there. There was obviously some oxidative characters in there because it's a 13 and a half year old bottle of beer. Right. But damn, if that beer didn't still just taste great. Yeah, there were no off flavors at all. Yeah. It, there were no deleterious effects from the age, really. Yeah, and and of course, obviously, we didn't have any any sort of old yeast characters to because we got rid of all the yeast. And I mean, that to me said that even if we lost the carbonation, you know, we were we did something right with that beer. And it's, again, I mean, guys, I will tell you this right now. I know the first time you hear about doing this whole thing, you go, that's way too much work for my beer. Remember, I'm the lazy guy. I have kegs because I don't want to bottle beer. I like doing this. I mean, this is this is a special thing. This is fun. Yeah, I mean, I I bottled my first batch. When I started home brewing, I kegged my second batch. Yeah. And I've since then, with the exception of the brute, the only bottling I've done is for comps because I hate bottling. I can't even bother to bottle for comps. <laughs> <laughs> but no. So again, remember the basic process again, just to break it down is brew a beer, nice and strong, bottle the beer, make sure you got good yeast health, riddle the beer. And then do this fancy freezing trick and throw out a yeast plug and then just do a refill. That's what all this is. And when you bring out a, a, a bottle of champagne beer, most people never heard of it. Even a lot of 
brewing aficionados have never had uh, Bastilles or Meliers. And it's, it is something fairly unique. Yeah. So by all means, ladies and gentlemen who are listening out there in podcast land, give this a try. We will include links to the recipes. We'll include links to the process. You'll be able to see it. And trust me, when you can go to an AHA convention like we have in the past and shoot corks high enough to actually damage ceiling tiles in ballrooms, you're doing something right. 2007 in Denver, a cork dented, dented the ceiling tile, and that ballroom ceiling had to be 20 feet in the air. Don't you want to dent ceiling tiles 20 feet in the air? I know you do. <laughs> Fletch, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and talk about the, the brutes. We totally have to get back to this because I think it was fun. It's time for another batch of brute. Yeah. It's time to be brutal. Call out the Brute Squad. Call out the Brute Squad. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this, well, this exploration of Method Champenoise and what it means to be a beer brute. As always, we'll include links to the beers, the recipes, and our longer write-up with the step-by-step instructions on just, well, how to pull off the magic that is champagne. And hey, if anyone has a lead on, you know, a whole pile of those 1.5 liter Magnum champagne bottles, let me know. I could use them. So now remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at denny at experimentalbrew.com or drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at EXP Brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, on Slack, and just about every homebrewing forum out there known to mankind. And don't forget that you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. Click the Amazon, AHA, or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is Axel's Angels and the Desi Strong Foundation, funding the treatment and cure of pediatric cancer. Until next time, remember, the brute is out there. And we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files.